This is Mark Gerson, and I'm the rabbi's husband. Thank you for tuning in. I'm Mark Gerson, and I'm the rabbi's husband. And here, as ever, to unearth the inspiring, instructive, and highly practical wisdom of a Torah passage with a fellow seeker of biblical truth. I am delighted today to be joined by Rabbi Yehuda Sarna. Rabbi Sarna is the executive director of the Bronfman Center for Jewish Student Life at, at NYU and the chief rabbi of the Jewish community of the UAE and the author of numerous books and articles. Rabbi Sarna, welcome to The Rabbi's Husband. Oh, it's great to be here. I actually can't believe I'm speaking to a real, a real live Rebitzer. I mean, it's a great honor. <laughs> I've wondered, am I a Rebitzin? I'm not a Rebitzin because that's a gendered term, right? What am I? Rebitzer, I've heard a few different ones, but the one that I think is the most compelling grammatically is Rebitzer. Okay, that's interesting. What, is that, what does that mean or how does it translate? Rabbi's husband. Is, what does Zer mean? Does Zer mean anything? No, I, I'm kidding around with you, Mark. Oh, no, but I, I've been on a serious quest for almost 13 years to, to, for my identity as a rabbi's husband. You know, I call myself Rebitzin, but now I'm just a rabbi's husband. And speaking about going on a quest for one's identity, I think we've picked the perfect passage to do so. Absolutely. So you've picked the great passage of Lech Lecha, Genesis 12 through 1. So tell us what happens in Genesis 12, 1 through 3, and why is it significant to you? What happens is Abraham is called and he begins his journey. And it's significant because the truth is, Mark, in one way or another, we're all on a journey. And his journey has been interpreted in so many different ways by different people over the course of Jewish history. And it's in many ways open for interpretation. I was struck even as a young person, you know, on my own journey, struck by the uncertainty of it all. Is that the uncertainty at all? Because God tells him you're going on a journey, but he doesn't tell him where he's going? Yeah. I mean, th that's a piece of it. But think about it this way. There's actually no part of what God says to Abraham, which is straightforward. So the first point is the one that you mentioned. He says, go on a journey to the place where I will show you. So what does that mean? Abraham, you know, steps out of his front door does he go left or does he go right, east or west? I mean, how is he supposed to know where to go? More than that, where exactly is he leaving from? What is he leaving? It says, lechcha so from your land, from the place that you were born, that's one way of understanding, or from the people who were born with you, that's another way of understanding. But we also know that if we read the very end of last week's Torah portion, literally the verses leading up to it, we know that Abraham is already not at home. He's not in his land. He already was going with his father on a journey. So where is he leaving from? And then, from your father's house, is this his father's physical house? Or is this his father's household? So is he supposed to be leaving the thing or leaving the people? Absolutely. Does the order of the places he's supposed to leave mean anything to you? So first his land, then his relatives, then is your father's house intuitively, one would think would be the exact opposite. You know, first you leave your house, then you leave your neighborhood, then you leave your country. But here, the order's reversed. Look, some people would read it as the experience of, uh, you know, Google Earth zooming in, you know. So in a pinpointed way, a process of pinpointing exactly from where you're leaving, much like when Abraham is told later on to sacrifice his only son, his son that he loves, Isaac, and arguably that it's a winnowing down of, of options in that case. But here, I don't know. I mean, the word moladetcha or moladet is actually used 
in different ways at different times. Sometimes it means the people who are born with you, namely siblings or other blood relatives. And sometimes it's used as place that you were born. So I think it's a toss-up. But instead of getting mired in figuring out what exactly it is that God meant, I think we're okay just saying that as Avram hears the instruction, he doesn't actually know what he's supposed to do. And we should be okay with that ambiguity, much like when Noah is told, at first, take two of every kind. And then later on, he's told, well, actually, take seven pairs of the pure animals, but only two pairs of the non-pure animals. So, okay, he receives contradictory information. So how many does he actually take? And I think we should be okay to say that Noah is actually unsure and is put in a position where he has to decide. And the truth is, as you go through the book of Genesis, even though you could read it, and many people do read the book of Genesis, as God instructs and human people do, very often when you have an instruction from God, actually it's not clear exactly what he wants. And that shift, as I began reading it that way, is what really spoke to me. Beautiful. So this is really a bit of divine ambiguity. I would read it as intentional ambiguity, because now we can say, okay, so how does Abraham actually respond? So how, do, how does he respond? If you skip over to uh, verse four, it says, Ve'elach Avram, Avram goes, as, as God had told him. You know, the way I read it, it's almost tongue in cheek. Torah doesn't really do satire in that way. But what does it mean, as God had told him? We don't even know really what God meant. But nevertheless, Ve'elach Lot, And Lot comes with him, who of course is a family member. So did Avram really leave his moledet? And more than that, Lech Lecha, wasn't Avram supposed to go alone? Wasn't he supposed to leave Beit Avicha? And nevertheless, it seems like Lot is coming with him. And Avram was 75 and he left Haran. And then it says more than that, Avram takes Sarai and Lot, his nephew. And all of their wealth, all of their property. But hold on a second. I thought he was supposed to detach from his father's house. So maybe the way Avram reads it, he's like, okay, I need to leave the physical location, but I'm still the son of Terah, and I'm still connected to these people. I'm still connected to my wife. I'm still connected to Lot. The Lot piece is particularly interesting because in verse four, it seems like Lot just decides to come with him. And the next verse, it says that Abraham took Lot with him. What are the circumstances? It's almost like at first Lot comes with him, and then Abraham decides to take him with he was kind of inching into that interpretation of father's house. He's not leaving his father's household. He's not leaving his family. And so there is a particular kind of interpretation that Abram takes, given the, the intentional ambiguity in God's instruction. By the way, this doesn't end. The interpretations continue. Here's why. Abram finally comes to the land of Canaan. And it's only once he's there that God says, this is the place. This is the land I'm going to give you. Next verse. And there is a famine in the land. What does Abram do? He leaves. So when he leaves, was he transgressing? Ramban, Nachmanides actually says, yeah, Avram did transgress. He did the wrong thing. We understand why, but he did the wrong thing. And he doesn't even pray. He doesn't, he doesn't even ask God with whom he has a direct relationship. He doesn't ask. Now, there is a, a certain story logic that's going on here, which I want to share with you in just a bit, but he doesn't even ask. He leaves. Wasn't that a transgression? Was that him not fulfilling the instruction? Well, did God ever say to stay? I mean, God said, go to that land. Maybe he says, you know what? 
I came, but now I'm going to move on. So what you see, but the way I read the opening verses of Lachlacha is not in the spirit of Avram being the knight of faith. Avram, you know, God speaking and Avram obeying. I read it a little differently. I read it as God speaks in ambiguous terms. And Abram has to make a decision about what it is that God is actually telling him to do. And so this is fascinating. So what, what you're saying is that God says to Abram at the beginning, go by yourself, for yourself, to yourself, a whole interesting realm of ideas there, but just go something yourself from your land, your relatives, and your father's house. Abram interprets that and emerges from his interpretation by going with Lot, with Sarah, and with all kinds of stuff from where he came from. So how do you interpret what Abram's interpreting? What's Abram thinking? How is he interpreting God's instruction? So I think there is a deeper logic to this story, which if you just start at the verses of Lech Lecha in this week's Torah portion, you'll miss it. If you start at the end of last week's parsha when Avram is first introduced, then I think you'll get it. Avram, the one thing we know about him and Sarai is that Sarai cannot have children. Sarai, Karat, Ema, Balad. That's the only thing we know about them. Then we know a few things about their circumstance. Number one is that Avram's own father, Terah, had set out on a journey. The other thing that we know is that Haran, uh, Lot's father, dies. And inexplicably, we don't know the circumstances for his death. And it, it looks like it is actually the first time a father predeceases their own child. And then we know that Terah dies on the way. If you were to rate the kind of luck factor, the fortune of the house of Terah on a scale of zero to five, you'd be looking at something like a, a one. Terah dies mid-journey. Haran dies prematurely. Sarai cannot have children. Neither Avram nor the other brother. It's unclear how this family will continue. Who's next in line? And if you look at the way God, I'll use this word, entices Avram, to go on the journey. It's not through the promise of land. It's not through the promise of land. He doesn't say, Avram, pick up, leave this land, go to another one, which I will give you. Instead, he says what? Pick up from this land, go to another place, and it is there that I will make you into a great nation. That is, it's the promise of continuity. It's the promise of the next generation. It's the promise of becoming a great nation. And it is only much later after Abraham goes on the journey that God says to him, oh yeah, by the way, this is the land that is going to be yours. Abraham, is mo- Abraham it feels like he's coming from a cursed place. His father dies, his brother dies, can't have children. You know the Hebrew expression, change of place, change of luck. That's what Abraham was looking for. How can I have children? How can I continue into the next generation? By the way, if you continue on in the Abrahamic narrative, I don't want to lose you by throwing out too many episodes in rapid fire, but if you follow Abram's journey, you will see that time and again, he prioritizes family over land. Time and again, I'll give you one or two examples. There's a war between the four kings against the five, and the impact is that the entire area of Sodom, part of the land that was promised to Abram, but the entire plain of Sodom is evacuated. But Lot is also taken captive. And what Avram does is he says, you know what, I got to go to battle. I got to save Lot. From a certain perspective, you would say, 
that for the fulfillment of the promise of Abraham inheriting the entire land, nothing could be better than the land becoming vacant. What could be better? This is part of the divine fall. But yet when Avram goes to battle and he wins, he says at the end, as they're discussing how to divvy up the spoils, it says that he brings back the entire populace. He restores the entire populace to that place as part of the agreement at the end. That is, he does not move in that favor. I'll give you another example. He has a negotiation with Abimelech. This is right before the binding of Isaac. And he had gotten to a spat with Abimelech. And he says, very simple, let's make a deal. You know, you keep your land, I'll keep my land. And let's not fight, not now, not, not the next generation, not the generation afterwards. In his essence, he's trying to protect his family by compromising on the land. When, when he and Lot, when their empires begin to grow, Avram's not particular about where he lives. He tells Lot, listen, if you go to the right, I'll go to the left. If you go to the left, I'll go to the right. Avram does not really care about the land. He cares about his family. But God does say to him in 12.1, go and from your father's house to the land that I will show you. So the destination, which at this point is unknown, is very important because there is a destination. We just don't know it and he just doesn't know it. But that's not why he goes. He's not going for land. That's the whole point is that as soon as there's a famine in the land that God told him, what does he do? He leaves. Why? Because he's like, I didn't come here to die. I came here so that the promise that you made with me originally, which is that I was going to have children, that's going to be fulfilled. So how do you think he interprets, getting back to the original question that you raised from 12.1, how does Abram interpret God's command? Because it seems to us that the Torah, of course, is not a history book. It's not a cookbook. It's not a law book. It's a guidebook to guide us as to how we can live better, happier, and more fulfilling lives today. So it's fascinating and deeply instructive that right here in this seminal passage, of 12, 1 through 4, Abram has to interpret what God wants of him, even though he has a direct relationship before he can walk in God's ways. So what you're seeing here is a negotiation between the ambiguous word of God and Avram's circumstance. Avram has no children. He doesn't see his future and he feels like his family is cursed. If there is any ambiguity in God's instruction, he is going to interpret in such a way that allows him to hold on to as much of his family as he can, that is, risk as little as possible for the higher yield, which is in case God comes through and he's able to have family of his own. So he's basically saying, God, I'm going to do what you say, but I'm going to interpret what I should do in a way that preserves me as a husband, as a family man, and indeed preserves some of what I've built or much of what I built in my previous life. It preserves me as a husband. It preserves me as an uncle. It preserves me as a slave business person. He's like, I'm not stripping myself of my previous identity. I am not cutting off my family. In fact, the whole reason why I'm doing this is so that I can perpetuate my family. Now, the reason why I'm sharing this with you is that we all, each one of us, each one of us, we all have our priorities in life and our needs. And whenever we hear something from somebody else, which has a degree of ambiguity to it, of course, we're going to interpret it in such a way, even sometimes even not even consciously, but we're going to interpret it in such a way that it matches as close as possible to the needs that we have, that it gives us the ability to hedge. So to control the downside, 
while we pursue the upside. That's what Avram is doing here. Well, we have whole professions based on that, the legal and accounting profession. You would know better than me. I'm just a teacher. But that's, you know, what are the rules and how can I operate within the rules to preserve as much as I can? That's what account, that's the question that accountants ask. And what you're saying is that Abram is asking that same question. How can I operate within the rule, in his case, what God told me, while preserving both what I have and what I would like to be? The very first Jewish accountant. Now, look, it does change towards the end, towards the end of the Abrahamic narrative, because there is a point at which the switch is flipped. Dramatic turn, where it seems like Avram has really yielded attachment to different parts of his family. And the thing that he cares about most at that point is controlling land. When is that? After Sarah dies. All of a sudden, after Sarah dies, we have the strangest, strangest story. His life partner of God knows how many decades passes away. By the way, we notice that he's not with her when she dies, that he comes to Hebron. And well, and she's probably not with him because he had just taken up his son to the mountain to be sacrificed without telling her. There you go. He comes to Hebron. And without describing what he said, the Torah says that he, he cried for her, he eulogized her. But then most of the chapter is not about the eulogy. It's about the real estate negotiation. Avram says, I insist that I own the spot that Sarah is buried. I said, we'll give it to you as a gift. He says, no, I want to own it. I want to own it. I'm not interested in your gifts. I'm not interested in your presence. He wanted it to be undisputably his. The next story, after that, he says, Isaac, it's important for you to find a wife. You cannot leave this land. I'm going to send my servant, Eliezer. He's going to go. He's going to leave the land. He will find you a wife. God will make sure he finds your wife, and he will bring you back. But he makes Eliezer swear. One thing, just make sure Isaac does not leave this land. So you see that towards the end of Avram's life, it is a total reversal. At this point, Avram, who, by the way, is not close to Yitzhak, they're not living in the same place. He and Sarah were not living in the same place. Ishmael was not living in the same place as Avram. Avram, at that point, had separated from his family. After the Akedah. Well, after, I would say, both Akedahs, that is, both the sacrifice of Ishmael when he sends Ishmael and Hagar out to the desert without enough food or water. And the, the story right after, when he sends, when he nearly sacrifices Yitzhak physically, of course, Yitzhak is still sacrificed psychologically. So he's not close to either son, and he and Sarah are distant. And what does he have left? Only the land. Right. Now, getting back to 12.3 for a moment. So 12.3 is perhaps the most important passage in the Torah for evangelical Christians. There are evangelical organizations called 12.3. Evangelicals will reference 12.3, not even Genesis 12.3, just 12.3, because it's such a common point of reference that kind of everyone knows what it, what it is. And this is, I will bless those who bless you, and him who curses you, I will curse, and all the families of the earth shall bless themselves by you. And in the evangelical imagination and worldview, this is what ties us together with them. Do the Muslim people that you're in close contact with, do they have the same relationship with 12.3 or do they have any relationship with 12.3 or how is it similar or different? They do not have the same Torah, friend. They have the Quran. So we share, we share similar stories, but I would say we don't share the same text. It would not be resonant. But of course, the grand story of the Abrahamic narrative is so deeply important to them. Well, exactly. The Abrahamic narrative and, and some of the 
most salient elements of the Abrahamic narrative comes down to hospitality, to welcoming in the stranger. And it's actually been overwhelming to see the way this biblical story, the Quranic story of Abraham as himself a journeyer, a journeyer who also takes the time, care, and effort to welcome in a stranger. It's been mind-blowing. There's no other word I can use. So this is the Abraham of Genesis 18. Exactly. Yes, that's right. Who welcomes in the stranger? That's exactly right. Uh, so, I mean, everything from the accords that were signed between the UAE, Bahrain, and, and Israel being, and the United States being called the Abraham Accords, to the, there's a new multi-faith complex that's going up in Abu Dhabi, which will have separate buildings, church, mosque, and synagogue, called the Abrahamic Family House. This is not a minor, this is a, this is a major, major government project. And there is no expense spared to make sure that each of these houses of worship is built according to the desires of the religious group that will worship there. In the, in the synagogue part, there's going to be not only a sanctuary, but also a mikvah, a ritual bath, and also a something like a Beit Midrash, a place where people can study. And I got to tell you, I'm working with the architects and the designers, everything from like how to, every specific detail about the mikvah, the ritual bath, to the lighting on Shabbat, a million and one details really all come down to Abraham, which is how can we make you feel the most comfortable here? How can we enable you to feel at home? How can we make you feel as you belong? Yeah, I mean, there are so many deeply profound uh, lessons and things to really arouse our gratitude and appreciation in this real-time story that you're telling about the Abraham Accords and the, this great friendship that you've done such an amazing job in helping nurture between the Jewish people of the United States and the UAE. And one of them is an idea that I believe originated with your colleague, Jonathan Sachs, which is he talked about the difference between power and influence. And with regards to Abraham, he said, he commanded no army. He led no empire. He had no troops. He had no voters. All he had was ideas. And yet, he had no power, but he had his influence was absolutely enormous. And when we, in fact, think about the distinction between power and influence, we actually talked about this in our Torah study last week. I mean, Martin Luther King, Martin Luther King had, like Abraham, he didn't have political power. He didn't have an army. He didn't have an elected office, but he had the power of his ideas, which translated into influence, which made him one of the greatest men in all of history, certainly in American history. Well, look, I, I um, first of all, we all pray for Jonathan Sachs' speedy, speedy recovery. And uh, God knows that he needs uh, everyone's prayers. So I've heard him, you know, over the years talk about that many times, the difference between power and influence. And I actually think it's a controversial idea. Why is that? Controversial in a post-Holocaust era when we, the Jewish people, do not want to be powerless. Controversial within an Israeli context where, you know, Israeli leaders will say, you know, it's, it's a tough, we live in a tough neighborhood and where military might and power, hard power is in the minds of many Israelis essential. So I, I think it is a controversial idea. But they're not contradictory though. And I think, you know, you can have power and influence. And we've talked about people who've had one or the other, but you can have power and influence like the modern state of Israel has. And I think Abraham teaches us the need for both. So of course, Abraham is the most influential man in human history. You talk about the Abraham Accords here, however many thousand years later for a man who had no army. That being said, Abraham does not do well when he has no power. When the man who had power, the Pharaoh, says to him, I want your wife, he basically prostitutes his wife, tells Sarah, say, say you're my sister, 
because he has no power, he can't even protect his wife. So I think what that teaches us is you need influence and you need power. If he had power, he could have said to the Pharaoh, you're not getting my wife. Are you crazy? But he didn't have the power. Yeah. Look, I think if you were to talk to, it's interesting to think about, and I'm no expert, but what I've been hearing from people who study the history of war is what we're observing is something of a transition away from war being all about hard power. And increasingly, if you look at the way governments are spending money to ostensibly win wars, a lot of it comes down to the war of ideas. It's a, the, the wars for, for hearts and minds is becoming increasingly important in the information age. You know, what stories can you get out? Uh, what information or misinformation can you get out? Who can you vilify the most? Who can you valorize the most? I mean, the, the battle for hearts and minds is proving to be increasingly important. And that's not to say that mil- militaries are not investing in the same way in hard power, but it, uh, it is making a lot of governments question exactly how to best use their resources. Yeah, I think that's been an eternal challenge. I mean, certainly in uh, World War II, you had those dynamics. The hearts and minds phrase, I believe, originated in Vietnam, or at least it's been around since at least Vietnam. It's interesting that the Bible, this, the same Abraham story teaches us the importance of both power and influence, because to read the story of Abraham you talk so beautifully about what a family man and what a devoted husband Abraham is, that he interprets God's command in a way that coheres with his vision of himself as the husband to Sarah and of maybe potentially the father, but he's old and she's old and they haven't had a child, but he's holding out hope against hope. This is his self-conception. He interprets God's command. And look, and look his nephew is orphaned. He's, what is he going to do? Just leave his orphaned nephew? No chance. That's right. But without an army... He doesn't have the power even to protect his beloved Sarah. At that point. At that point, right. At that, at that point. So that's, that's the powerless Jew, right? He's the powerless Jew. He has influence. He has intelligence. He has no power. What, what happens next? He has to give his wife to the Pharaoh. Not a good, a horrible outcome, a tragic outcome. I mean, one imagines how Abraham must feel. He needs power. Look, I think there is something about Abraham. Now, now that you mentioned that point about power, I think there is one thing which is so stares us in the face about Abraham as core to his identity, but unfortunately it's something that's missed by most interpreters, which is that Abraham, more than any other biblical character, is a deal maker. He is a maker of covenants. He is a partner. That is the way he goes through the world. He makes agreements with people and with God. This two covenants between God and, and Abraham. He makes agreements, he makes deals, he makes covenants. Um, and so when he goes to battle, you know, to rescue his, his nephew, it says that he goes with his Baale Brit, Aner, Eshkol, Mamre. These were the people who were Baal Brit. They were in covenant with him. They were his allies. Abraham is the first ally. Noah stands alone. Noah walked with God, not with other people. Abraham is the person who makes agreements with other people. And I think that is so core to Avram's identity and maybe related to that point that you were making about Avram not having or not accruing his own power, but in many ways he doesn't need to. When you are an influencer, you can rely and you can trust the, the power of others. Right. Well, Yehuda, thank you for such a fascinating discussion about, I mean, we could go on all day. I was just thinking, you know, I think you should write a book called Abraham the Partner. But uh, we could go on all day talking about um, our father, Abraham, both from the Bible and from your work uh, 
currently. Now, the concluding question on the rabbi's husband always goes from one text, a sacred text of the Bible, to another text, which is Andre Malroux's 1968 book, Anti-Memoir. On page one of his book, he says, I just ran into this man with whom I served in the war. He said, this man had saved a lot of Jews and then had become a parish priest. So I said to the priest, in all of your years of hearing confessions, what are two things that you've learned about mankind? And the priest said, one, everyone is much less happy than he seems. And two, there is no such thing as a grown-up person. So in all of your years, both as a rabbi to young people and as the chief rabbi of the UAE and all of the interfaith engagement that uh, that brings, what are two things that you learned about humankind? The two things that I've learned about humankind, number one is that we need each other and that we are truly interdependent. And number two is that we are a, a learning species when we're at our best. We continue learning. And as soon as we stop learning, everything else starts to fall apart. And learning comes with, it can only happen when we have a sense of humility, sense of journey, sense of purpose. But at our core, we are a learning species. That's a beautiful idea. And I think it's particularly so in that I think God's a learning God. And I think God is perfect because he learns and because he changes. For instance, God realizes that Noah is not the guy to recreate the world. He, he expects him to. Noah gets drunk. And then God realizes he was never the guy. I'm going to learn. There's a different kind of guy. Who comes next? Abraham. Did you ever read the biography of God by Jack Miles? I have not. Should I read it? I've heard good things about it. Oh, yes. Yeah. Terrific. I, I certainly will. Well, it's been a pleasure to be here with you. No, great speaking to you, too. Well, thank you. If you're enjoying this episode, I hope that you'll sign up for the Rabbi's Husband newsletter, which includes book giveaways from our podcast guests, my weekly column on Christian Broadcasting Network, inspiring updates from United Hatsala and African Mission Healthcare, and a behind-the-scenes look at my upcoming book published by St. Martin's Essentials, The Telling, How Judaism's Essential Book Reveals the Meaning of Life. You can sign up at therabbishusband.com or feel free to email daniel at therabbishusband.com. If you're enjoying this episode, I hope that you'll sign up for the Rabbi's Husband newsletter, which includes book giveaways from our podcast guests, my weekly column on Christian Broadcasting Network, inspiring updates from United Hatsala and African Mission Healthcare, and a behind-the-scenes look at my upcoming book published by St. Martin's Essentials, The Telling, How Judaism's Essential Book Reveals the Meaning of Life. You can sign up at therabbishusband.com or feel free to email daniel at therabbishusband.com.